From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sharina. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Um, before we get into our first segment, I want to introduce our guest for today, uh, Vine Pair writer at large, Dave Infante. Dave, welcome back to the show. I'm glad to be here, Joanna. <laughs> we thought we'd uh, we'd uh, intro you now so we could all talk about what we've been drinking lately because uh, we missed that for you last time. So, Dave, why don't you kick it off? What have you been drinking? I felt left out, but thank you I'm for so bringing sorry. me into the fold. <laughs> uh, I have a bottle of um Oh, you're currently Scarpa. drinking right now. I'm currently drinking right now. Yeah, from the <laughs> bottle, actually. Uh, I got a, a bottle of uh, Scarpa Vermouth uh, di Torino Bianco. Uh, so just some um, vermouth mm-hmm. from Torino. And uh, I've been drinking a lot of that just over ice with a little orange twist. I know that's like way out of season um, and, you know, kind of more of a summer drink, but I've really been enjoying it lately. And as you, I think, know or I guess maybe listeners don't know, I'm, I'm soon to be moving. So I'm kind of uh, trying to like clear out my fridge right now. <laughs> so whether I want to be drinking the vermouth or not, uh, that's what I'm drinking right now. <laughs> you definitely don't want to be packing it up and putting it in the U-Haul. No, right. no. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's my mission and I choose to accept it. <laughs> we, re- we, we appreciate your service, Dave. <laughs> what about you, Zach? Well, you know, as we're recording this, and I guess as this is going live, we're entering the very final moments of uh, dry January for me. So one last non-alcoholic shout out. And I I actually shouted out this brand um, before dry January even started, I think. But I'm like mildly obsessed with this brand of uh, seltzers called Nixie. And the one that I've been into lately is the grapefruit. And I Mm -hmm. swear I have never experienced this with a canned product before the smell when you open a can of it is absolutely a hundred percent the smell of like peeling a grapefruit like you just get that like volatilized the the oils and the pith and it's like i don't know how they do it i assume some kind of black magic i i don't (laughs) probably really want to know um and it's like i've you know you can get like a spindrift or something that is a the seltzer with fruit juice added where like you get that real kind of grapefruit flavor but this has like no fruit juice in it I, I it's i'm it's either remarkable or terrifying i'm not sure but i really enjoy them so that's kind of been been going through a lot of the 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 recycling bin was very full this week not with wine bottles like it usually is but with empty seltzer cans um <laughs> So that's been me. How about you, Joanna? Um, I uh, well, before I, before I mention what I, I drink, I wonder if they have uh, canned cocktails in their future. I feel like citrus is really hard to nail. Uh, we, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll have to maybe keep an eye out. Interview them. Um, <laughs> yeah, I recently went to a restaurant in the West Village called Sema, and uh, I had a cocktail there. It was like their take on an old fashioned with bourbon and um, spiced jaggery syrup, which is really delicious, and a coconut water ice cube. And it had a little bit of a toasted coconut on the rim. That was really, really good. Like definitely one of the more outstanding drinks I've had this year so far. Um, So, so yeah, that's a, that's pretty much the extent of the drinking I've been doing these days. Um, That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about how coconut would be an interesting flavor with bourbon. Like it doesn't seem, Yeah, I don't think of a lot, I can't think of a lot of cocktails that like call for those two ingredients. It's interesting because it's not like so coconut forward. It's like the coconut water ice cube lends a little bit of that like that savoriness that you get from mm-hmm, coconut water mm-hmm. and then the toasted coconut was just like not too overpowering at all but i think maybe with the the spiced syrup it really it came together really nicely really cool drink. yeah sounds tasty for sure well now that we've uh 
covered the things we were drinking. I think we should talk about something, things we could be drinking in the near future. Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of why we wanted to have you on, Dave, because um, you wrote, um, you've written about this a lot, including at your uh, really excellent uh, Substack Fingers, which I am a subscriber to, mm -hmm. um, and uh, so you listeners should check out as well. Um, and you've written a lot about the sort of the entering of the beverage alcohol space of some of these, um, you know, either soda or energy drink companies. And, and the most prominent of those was uh, Monster's acquisition of Canarchy uh, earlier in January. But mm -hmm. first and foremost, Dave, can you kind of just lay out for us kind of what what we have seen so far in uh, kind of some of these either acquisitions or product uh, announcements that that are kind of these hybridizations of existing um, non-alc brands with with a boozy take, I guess. So yeah, the underlying you know landscape here on which some of these moves are happening is beer share in the United States has been declining steadily for years. Spirits is on the rise. Um, wine is kind of off in the hinterlands doing its own thing. Wine is <laughs> if you look at the graph, like wine is a topic to come. Don't worry. Yeah, <laughs> wine. The wine line is just kind of like off on its own and it, it, like on the X and Y axis in a totally different place than wine and beer. But uh, wine and beer, or excuse me, uh, spirits and beer are kind of headed towards each other. Beer is declining and spirits is rising. And so like that macro trend is coinciding with a couple others, you know, in the broader beverage ecosystem. And one of the big ones is that the the big soda companies, the big soft drink companies that have traditionally, you know, uh, specialized in non-alcoholic beverages, they've gotten really good um, at, you know, the distribution and merchandising of the sodas and the teas and the juices and whatever. They are um, increasingly looking to uh, growth opportunities in the alcohol category. Um, this is a door that has been open for a while, but really only a few brands have ever tried to walk through it prior to, you know, um, 2020 or so is when we kind of start started seeing real interest there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there were always kind of like juice crossovers and some tea that, you know, was being developed, but it was usually hard tea products that were developed by outfits that were marketing it as alcohol rather than um, brands that had strong uh, tea brands in the non-alc space. And then they were adding alcohol too. So, so twisted tea as opposed to, you know, Snapple, but with exactly, right. Yeah, exactly. Great example. That's exactly how to think about it. Right. Um, but more recently, you know, spurred on by, um, you know, consolidation in all sides of the beverage industry, mm -hmm. uh, both non-alc and alc, um, and the demonstrated consumer preference for products that, you know, offer, conventional flavor, um, really approachable, uh, you know, packaging and marketing that looks a lot more like, uh, like sodas than it does like beers. Um, you start to see soft beverage companies kind of take a look at that and be like, well, wait a second, we can do, we do a lot of the things that are making White Claw and Truly and, um, uh, you know, some of the other hard seltzers successful in the marketplace, What's so different about what we're producing, except for the fact that it doesn't have fermented cane sugar in it? And so the blurring lines, which is you know a big motif that you hear um, you know, amongst beverage industry types, um, the blurring lines have really, I think, encouraged more 
players from outside of the beer space um, to start looking at what that beyond beer um, alcoholic beverage space might look like with them in it. Mm -hmm. And that's the, so that's the backdrop that we're working with here. I actually have a question um, based on what you just said. You mentioned that the door had been open for a while. Why do you think it's taken this long? I think there's a few reasons. One, this has been tried before, right? So if we're talking about soda, um, we saw hard soda kind of in the middle of the craft boom of last decade. Um, We saw that come hard and flop really hard. Um, It was not a successful uh, category launch. It had no escape velocity. Um, Products like Not Your Father's Root Beer and the, um, I think, Weinhardt, Blitz Weinhardt, I think, introduced hard, their own hard sodas, they they failed to catch on with the sort of leading edge of the beverage uh, or of the, of the alcoholic beverage industry at the time. Craft beer drinkers mostly rejected these products. Mm. Um, so that obviously is going to make everyone a little gun shy, right? Everyone's kind of paying attention to what's happening. Um, you see that stuff go out and really fail to gain traction. And that's going to, you know, make people rethink their yeah. uh, innovation pipeline a little bit. Um, I think another reason is that the, you know, non-alcoholic beverage conglomerates like Monster or Coca-Cola, which owns 17 or 18% of Monster and mm-hmm. um, anyone else who's got big, you know, PepsiCo, big beverage portfolios, those brands are really powerful and really attractive. Um, so there's a lot of equity there, but they're very I think in the past, they've been more conservative about, Mm -hmm. you know, leveraging those brands in the alcohol space. I mean, alcohol comes with its own considerations around, you know, decency and moderation. Um, A lot of those products are family oriented products, right? Like you want, you want to be able to like get the, um, you know, the mom with the $200 grocery cart to feel comfortable putting, you know, your Minute Maid lemonade or whatever in their cart without, making her feel like, oh, this is kind of a gateway to an alcoholic uh, product, right. you know, with the same branding down the road. So there's sensitivity around that. And, you know, those companies, these big CPG companies, like uh, time and time again, sources just emphasize to me, like they are not in the business of taking unnecessary risks. Like they're managing, managing massive portfolios that are growing very methodically and deliberately. And like, they just kind of want to be tweaking you know, their approach a little bit because the scale that they're at, you know, one good tweak can generate, you know, whatever, uh, double, you know, double digit percentage points of growth, but one bad tweak or one, you know, too uh, risky move, Mm -hmm. such as introducing alcohol uh, can have the negative effect. So being cautious and, and kind of waiting to see how the category develops. I think, you know, again, like hard seltzer, um, paved the way for a lot of that. Paved the way. I think even going a little bit further back, I mean, I wrote that the story about Takiza a while ago, but Mm -hmm. Takiza, you know, you can kind of see with the benefit of hindsight, you can see Takiza and then the Limerita product that, you know, Bud Light introduced afterwards, which just then became the Rita's family of beverages. Mm -hmm. Um, very fruit forward, very sweet. Um, you know, not, not really a prestige product by any means, but, um, one that performs very successful for its time. And, um, you know, so there are, there are kind of these data points where you're seeing innovation on the, um, on the alcohol side of the equation towards things that look more like soft beverages. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not sure that it was ever this explicit, but like you could kind of 
like map onto that a narrative of at some point, you know, the, the CPG conglomerates that had non elk portfolios were like, well, wait a second, like they're doing this coming towards us. Why don't we, do, why, why don't we do it going towards them? You know? Yeah. Well, I think this is a really fascinating point because to, to, to pick up on a couple of things that you said um, earlier, Dave, one is that I think a big difference from what we saw with those sort of hard sodas, um, which were largely kind of created brands attempting to build uh, a market for this category is like we are seeing, I mean, PepsiCo is about to launch a Mountain Dew branded hard seltzer. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time some of you are listening to this, it might be in stores. The, um, you know, the potential is there for, you know, whether it's Pepsi or Coke, I mean, the the whether it's a whiskey coke or rum and coke like that's one of the biggest call drinks in any bar anywhere sure and coca-cola probably at some point i mean for a long time as you said coca-cola defined itself as a brand in opposition to to alcohol in a lot of ways i mean in opposition to pepsi but it's part of its selling point to adults was you know we're we're not we're not alcoholic and for a you know especially in this country but in lots of parts of the world where lots of people don't drink for or don't want to drink often or or it's you know, unacceptable to drink at certain times of day or certain days of the week or whatever. That whole thing is very powerful. And I can understand them not wanting to dilute that very, very powerful branding. On the other hand, as you said, there is an element where it's got to be like, you know, we're watching sales that could be ours. I mean, mm-hmm. you would think mm-hmm. that a Coca-Cola branded Coke and rum product would probably sell really, really well. Cause for a lot of people, the thing that's important in there is the Coca-Cola. It's not so much the rum. They're going with whatever well rum the bar, the dive yeah. bar or otherwise Give me the worst rum you have. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm relying on the Coke to carry it. And so there, again, it's, it, it, we are kind of in this weird space where I don't know if it's just that like in the United States in particular, like drinking has become more accepted broadly, or if it's just the dollar figures, mm-hmm. you know, the, the money at stake here is just maybe too big for even these conservative behemoths to to ignore that at some point they are being too conservative and not pursuing some of that um, market share. Does that does that ring true? You know, that's certainly a big piece of the puzzle, right? So these companies are looking for growth. And, you know, we saw it last decade in the way that macro brewers, you know, when their core categories or their light adjunct lagers, um, those flagship beers started to flag, uh, no pun intended, the they started turning to the hot growth area, which at the time was the craft beer industry. And that's why you see acquisitions, you know, Anheuser-Busch led the way with 11 over the course of uh, like nine years, you know, starting with Goose Island. Um, Molson Coors, I think, picked up five or six in the same amount of time. Constellation, you know, tried to make a move and, and wound up, you know, overpaying for Ballast Point, you know, and, and wound up selling that for like a nickel on the dollar in 2019. But the point is that they were making moves, Heineken with Lagunitas, and they're buying growth. That's that's the move. Now, craft beer has leveled off, um, certainly in this country. Um, and that doesn't mean these companies, you know, these publicly traded companies' appetite for growth has leveled off. So they're always, they're always looking, you know, you can think of them like great white sharks or, you know, even maybe bigger and bulkier predators than that. They're always kind of looking around to see what the next big thing is because they have to deliver, they have to deliver shareholder return and they have to constantly have things in the pipeline that, you know, they've placed bets behind that they think are going to deliver that growth. So whether or not, um, you know, there was internal resistance to it, at some point, if the growth is not available in the categories that you're currently playing in, you really only have one choice, uh, and that's to go play in the categories that 
you know, their, the growth is there. And mm-hmm. now what I think is interesting, Zach, is like the different examples you mentioned, like there's a few going on, right? So the, the big acquisition in January, the biggest acquisition, I guess, um, Monster Energy uh, acquired Canarchy, which was a private equity roll-up of craft brewing companies led by Oscar Blues and, and Cigar City, um, and then a couple others, um, and the Wild Basin Hard Seltzer brand. Um, they acquired Canarchy for $330 million. Also, this past month, Coca-Cola announced that it would start making Fresca Mix, um, Mm -hmm. which is going to be a Fresca alcoholic product that they're going to put into the pipeline with Molson Coors. Obviously, that's – or strike that. They're doing that with Constellation? No, Constellation. Yeah, I thought it was Constellation. Okay. So Coca-Cola is doing the the Fresca Mix with Constellation. They also have the joint venture – with Topo Chico hard seltzer, right. um, with Molson Coors, which is performing very well for them. Um, so Coca-Cola is moving deliberately, right? Like they're, they're establishing joint ventures. They're finding strategic partners who they think match up well with the brands, um, that they, you know, uh, that they want to leverage. And then most recently, just this past week, mm-hmm. this is the one I was thinking of is Coca-Cola is going to deploy their simply, um, lemonade line. Like lemonade. Um, Yes, as a spiked lemonade product with Molson Coors. Mm-hmm. So they're moving, you know, very deliberately. They're not trying to build brands on their own necessarily. And obviously, like the expertise that they bring certainly is logistics. Um, but the alcohol logistics in this country, as you guys know, are much more complex than mm-hmm. non-alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to have expertise. You have to have the distribution networks. They have to, you know, have uh, different kinds of depending on the state, maybe stocking different stores uh, or, you know, different parts of the stores. So they want, they want strategic partners who they can rely on um, to get these brands to market in a way that uh, is going to give them the best chance for success. And that game is no different, whether it's, you know, a small craft player or Coca-Cola. The only difference is Coca-Cola has a lot more leverage to sign big deals with the largest macro brewers, um, you know, to get to achieve that scale very quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have a couple of of questions for you, Dave, that that revolve around some of those acquisitions or and or product announcements that you described. So first of all, a thing that I've still been a little bit hard, I find it hard to puzzle out is what is Monsters play here? Like, what what is the reason you think they made this purchase? Because like, it, my my sense is that like. Canarchy wasn't exactly like killing it in the beer game. So like, what is there? What's the, what is the point here? The biggest point in the reporting, I rely a lot on this deal. Uh, our colleagues, uh, Justin Kendall and Jess Fonte over at Brewbound were all over this deal and, and did a series of really well-reported stories. Um, and I base a lot of my analysis off that. So shout out to their great work on that front. What, what Monster has been pretty clear about, their executives have been pretty clear about the opportunity with Canarchy is not so much around the beer brands that they're buying, um, you know, the Oscar Blues, the Cigar City, Wasatch, Parent, uh, and the other breweries that are in that deep ellum, um, the, the, the breweries that are in the Canarchy portfolio. I don't think that they are going to just, you know, throw those in the dustbin, but what they are most excited about is the logistics network and right. the distribution network um, to immediately unlock what, you know, they would refer to as a platform um, to launch a series of 
of flavored malt beverage style products. Um, mm-hmm. They're going to introduce a hard seltzer. They've already been very clear about that. They're not going to be introducing it under the monster name. And I think that's an instance where, you know, monster is just such a strong brand, but it skews, um, you know, it, it has youth uh, kind of built into it. It has kind of the gamer culture built into it. There's some kind of guardrails there that I guess that they, you know, they feel it's not worth trying to introduce under that brand name and potentially risking the equity there. Um, mm-hmm. But the point is like, they have an innovation pipeline. They, they're they very good at packaging. They're very good at branding. They know how to do flavors. They know how to do, um, you know, product market fit for um, these types of beverages. So unlike the deals, and I was just talking to a source of mine, Townsend Zebold, who works at Cohen, um, Cowan, it's a big uh, private equity firm that does a lot of mergers and acquisitions in the, in the, and he's been specializing in the beverage industry for the past three decades. Um, his point was like the, the acquisitions of last year, excuse me, of last decade, um, where you saw macro brewers buying craft brewers, a lot of what they were buying certainly was the growth that they had the potential for and also the innovation. I mean, those Mm -hmm. were effectively the innovation pipeline for Anheuser-Busch, right? Like a a big part of their innovation strategy was just like, well, I don't know, like uh, people seem to like uh, Devil's Backbone, whatever they're putting out, like instead of like trying to figure out how they make those beers. Why don't we just buy devil's backbone? Right. Like, yeah, exactly. And that was after, you know, in the nineties, ABI tried and failed to clone craft beer. So they knew they couldn't do it. And they were just like, ah, fuck it. Let's just do it by buying them. Mm -hmm. Um, What we're seeing now um, with these acquisitions with with the monster deal specifically um, is monster doesn't need that innovation. I mean, I'm sure they're happy about it. I don't think they're going to, like I said, I don't think they're just going to get rid of the brands or anything. Um, Mm -hmm. But they don't, that's not what they're buying. What they're buying is a platform. um, They're buying access, right? Access. It's relatively turnkey. They can get to market very quickly with an existing sales force, with an existing alcohol distribution network. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's the key value proposition for them, at least in the short term, right. um, is to is to have that access, have that platform. So much faster than starting from scratch for them. Oh, it's I mean, it's you really can't start from scratch. Uh, oh, you almost can't start from scratch. I mean, the amount of the size of the portfolio um, of like the big players in each market is such that you know you need the relationships to be able to to move into their portfolio in a big way and to get the mind share you need to carve into, um, you know, onto the shelves uh, with new products. I mean, like that's, you're just fighting too many uphill battles there Mm -hmm. or it would just be exceptionally hard to do. And monster, I think to its credit, you know, talks had swirled for a long time. Everyone knew monster wanted to make a move uh, into alcohol. They've been very, you know, deliberate and purposeful and frankly, like kind of dragging their feet, I think, you know, to make sure that they kind of understood exactly what they were getting. And yeah, Zach, to your earlier point, I mean, Canarchy wasn't failing, um, mm-hmm. but I don't think anyone, uh, any honest dealer would say that they were a runaway success as a roll up. I mean, this was, I'm sure that the, you know, fireman capital, um, got out, you know, with their money. Uh, I would be surprised if they, they took heavy losses on it, but like, this was also not, uh, a runaway success. And I think that the story there is like Oscar blues and, and cigar city are strong brands within the craft space, 
but they're legacy brands within the craft space and the craft space is itself kind of a legacy it's becoming a legacy space within beverage and and so you're seeing maturing growth and i think that the trend lines with oscar oscar blues specifically are actually trending down a little bit in sales um so yeah i don't think that's an instance you know monsters executives have been pretty clear about uh you know their excitement around specifically the access and the platform that they're buying so my my last question for you, Dave, on this topic that I think is 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 kind of maybe the hardest one to answer, but I would love if you have a, a guess or a prediction. Like, it does feel like we're kind of waiting for one of these big one of these big uh, companies, whether it's Coke, Pepsi, Monster, etc., to kind of push all their chips in the table, say "fuck it," and we're going to make some an alcoholic brand branded with our most successful, most icon like iconic brands. Mm -hmm. Do you think we're close to that? Do you think that's coming? Or do you think they're going to remain trepidatious to put not, you know, not Fresca, fine, whatever. (laughs) Mountain Dew even pretty, obviously pretty big brand. But you know, we're we're not talking Coke, we're not talking Pepsi as main products. Like, do you think that's coming? I mean, with the caveat that no one knows what they're talking about in this space and like any, anyone. <laughs> Definitely who says not that, us. Yeah, just certainly not. And yeah, certainly not me. But like, it's hard for me to imagine uh, Coca-Cola to get behind, uh, like, a, I'm just speaking theoretically here, like a Coke hard seltzer. Like, that's very difficult for me to imagine. I mean, stranger things have happened, certainly. Um, but, you know, I think the risks are just too high and they, I think... We'll know a lot more based on how well Simply and how well Fresca right. do. I mean, because like those are kind of, you know, if you if you envision, you know, I have no special uh, insight into their, you know, innovation strategy. But if you if you envision their innovation strategy as an aggressive one for a second, just hypothetically speaking, you could view those as trial balloons, right? Okay, mm-hmm. we're taking our flagship brands in specific categories, Um and we're going to we're going to see what happens if we just slap, you know, uh, if we just kind of inject a bunch of, you know, fermented cane sugar, fermented uh malt into it and and just, you know, kind of put it out there, right? If simply spiked lemonade falls flat um and flops in 9 months and, you know, gets the cacti treatment and just gets kind of taken out back and shot, <laughs> um you know, I I don't think I, you know, I think you can you can be very certain that you'll never see uh, you know, a Coke hard seltzer ever. If it doesn't, and if simply, you know, simply spiked lemonade, uh, you know, goes gangbusters and they can't keep it on the shelves because it's selling so well, yeah, maybe, maybe that, uh, mm-hmm. that doomsday clock moves a little bit closer to midnight over at the oh, course or over at the Coca Cola, uh, you know, innovation, uh, war room. I mean, and maybe that, that gets a little bit more feasible. But to me, for any of these big companies, those flagships, there's just so much culture tied up in yeah. like preserving those brands and elevating those brands that, you know, I, it's very hard for me to imagine it. I mean, to, to use a beer industry example, and they're not the same business, but, you know, Maureen Ogle, who's a, a beer historian, she wrote Ambitious Brew. I was speaking to her the other day. She has great like long-term perspective on the beer industry. She's emphatic that, you know, beer must be considered in the broader context of the beverage industry, like, you know, for a long time, the, the silos that existed, um, you know, kind of kept beer from acknowledging that it was just another beverage. Um, and certainly the regulator regulatory structure kind of reinforces that. But, you know, her point is that like, what you're seeing now is what always should have been happening, which is that 
beer is being co-opted and, you know, kind of like absorbed by the broader beverage category. And what the point I was going to make is that back in, what was it? 72? No, strike that. 81 maybe. Whenever, whenever Anheuser-Busch introduced Bud Light, which was the extension off Budweiser, which was then the flagship, it took them like, it took them like, you know, five, 10 years to follow Miller into the light beer category because they were just, they didn't want to damage the Budweiser brand. Mm -hmm. Those forces are real and they're not just a function of like market research. They're also a function of company culture and, you know, ego and pride in like, you know, the flagship brand that exists. I mean, there are Coke executives and and Coke people who have been there, you know, and they only work on Coca-Cola. They care very much about that brand. So you're not, it's not just a matter of like a cold calculated decision um, where it's like, well, this makes sense. You know, uh, we're going to do it or this doesn't make sense. We're not going to do it. Like there's a big, there's a big shade of gray and and it's, it's, it, it can be a bit of an emotional decision. I mean, that's, that is a factor. I don't think it's the deciding factor, but it's something to consider. Mm-hmm. But something I, something we could also learn from that is that I don't think it took very long for Bud Light to surpass Budweiser in sales. So sometimes that that reticence to to move into a new category is maybe either unfounded or in fact can be actively harmful to a to it a was damaging. Company. They 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 yeah. absolutely. I mean, anyone who you know has covered that period of the beer industry. I mean, Anheuser Busch was late. They were late to the light beer. Uh, business and it was almost a problem for them. Um, you know, they were, they were able to kind of muscle their way back into the front of that category after, but I mean, they spent millions and millions of dollars to do it. Um, whereas if they were a little bit more forward thinking, they could have kind of nipped Miller in the bud on that. Um, no pun intended. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think like the soda, like the move from the soda companies like PepsiCo and, uh, you know, Coca Cola obviously is making a bunch of moves right now. Um, I think it's really, to me, it's a monster. To me, it's exciting. Um, oh, bang. We didn't even talk about bang. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> bang Energy is like, uh, you know, kind of, right? they were the forerunners on this. They have bang, mm-hmm. they have mix, M-I-X-X. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know how that product is performing. Like, I haven't heard a, like a word about it. Um, but, uh, you know, you can see Jack Owak as kind of a visionary in terms of understanding what people kind of want out of these products. And, um, you know, he introduced Bang Mix uh, Hard Seltzer at the beginning of 2021. So he was out in front a little bit. So we have these big players moving into the space. They understand branding. They understand distribution. They understand flavor. Um, And it's exciting for drinkers, certainly. It's exciting for people like us who cover the space. I don't think it's that exciting for you know, craft brewers, certainly. Um, and then, you know, people who are diehard beer people also like you're seeing a situation where, and we've talked about this a lot and I've written about this for, for Vine Pair before, like the energy, uh, or the, the momentum in beverage right now is, has shifted away from, um, sort of artisanal products and, and local and, uh, uh, you know, uh, craft, um, those, th- that framing and much more towards, um, you know, flavor, uh, and color and, mm-hmm. you know, traditional, um, uh, like better for you health messaging that plays better in the broader CPG space than it ever has in the craft space. So if I'm a craft brewer and I'm thinking about what my get in is on the hard, hard soda, hard seltzer, uh, you know, trend, I mean, 
part of the reason that you're seeing so much success with fruited fruited side like kettle sours um is because like that's that's a that's a good analog right like that's something that's still very craft beer but it's the flavor profiles and sort of the occasions um which is you know kind of how the industry talks about uh, opportunities to sell shit um the they're much more similar than um you know stouts and and ipas mm-hmm. um and so i think that's why you're seeing a lot of growth in that category yeah i don't think uh i don't think coke is ever gonna yeah what do you guys think yeah, yeah. you don't think so right I don't, it's think hard to gonna, imagine. I think they're gonna protect their or yeah protect their prestige brand they have so many other brands that they can do this with before i will bet uh at least a drink, maybe significantly more than that, that within five years, there is a Coca-Cola branded product on the market that has alcohol in it. Market? I don't think that's true. I, I mean, you got to, I mean, I'll take the other side of that. I'm sure <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll happily take the other side of that. I think you're very wrong. Okay. Um, yeah, cool. Write it down. Or we have, okay. this is being recorded for posterity and yeah. a couple of years from now. Well, I'll tell you what, if, if it happens, I'll buy you a 12 pack of, uh, of Coca-Cola hard seltzer. Hard seltzer. Well, I, that means I lose either way dave (laughs) (laughs) well you know that's why you shouldn't gamble zach um yeah it's a it's a wild time in the in the industry i mean everything i joke a lot about how like you know cpg is just everything is just converging to the singularity where the only thing that matters is is the brand and the brand is just going to encompass everything um you know i think that's probably a little bit of an exaggeration but what we're seeing right now is that uh, these companies that manage these brand portfolios are much more interested in, you know, figuring out new ways to leverage them mm-hmm. and you know, capturing drinker interest across the non-alk to alk spectrum. And that means that we're going to see a lot of great stuff or some great stuff and a lot of terrible stuff. <laughs> can I can I defend my my position here for just one moment before we, we end things? Please. My argument my argument in favor of why I think within 5 years we'll have a product like this out is that one of the things that you are seeing with with brands like Coca-Cola with um Pepsi etc is you can see them kind of trying to get around a a challenge that they face which is that they lose a pretty good chunk of their like there's attrition in their in their consumer base as people move away from soda as their primary beverage as they get older. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that some people don't continue to drink soda throughout their entire life. And obviously, you know, the, so much of the growth in the category has been in the diet or zero or whatever categories because they people find ways to fit them into their drinking life even after they're of age to drink alcohol. But I think that, like, if you're Coca-Cola, if you're PepsiCo... And you're looking at this landscape and you see these, you know, sort of carbonated flavored alcoholic beverages as uh, even if they're not growing at their crazy percentage rates that they were growing a few years ago, because obviously the market, the, the market has expanded dramatically. It can't keep growing at that percentage. It's still that and, and just hard alcohol are your two areas of real growth in beverage alcohol right now. And I don't know. I think if you're going to dip your toe in, you might as well jump in. And, yeah. and I think that I think that you know to come back to the to the Budweiser, you know, the Anheuser Busch Miller comparison. Like, I don't know that in today's marketplace, you know, 40 years ago, Anheuser Busch could be late to the game and still get back in it. And I'm not as sure that that's easy to do now. Like, things just move faster. And if you are not on the radar in a category that you could be crushing, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's a good business move. Like, yeah. and I, and I get what you say about there being 
the last thing I'll say is I get what you say about there being a cor- kind of corporate culture of, you know, we're Coca-Cola. We're not a, we're not an alcohol brand. We're a soda brand. But you know what? The other thing that's happened in the world of business over the last 30, 40 years is that kind of sentimentality has mar- largely been driven out. Like, yeah. You know, and also those people don't... are going to retire, like, and yeah. eventually like the, yeah, the people that hold those sentiments so dear are going to exit. Right. Yeah. yeah. And someone's going to say, you know, this category is a, you know, $10 billion category. We don't have any foot and we don't have any part yeah. of it. What, what the fuck are we doing? Yeah. And yeah. that, that to me, the, the, what the fuck are we doing argument is a kind of compelling one. So yeah. that's my, that's my rationale. One uh, one additional uh, sort of morsel that I wanted to mention here that may support your argument um, is that, you know, over the course of the past decade, as the macro brewers went through their acquisitions um, in the craft space, um, the Department of Justice started taking note of, you know, how much consolidation there was mm-hmm. happening in the in the beer industry. And, you know, there were a few shots across the bow um, for Anheuser-Busch in particular uh, that, you know, made them a little bit more reluctant to, um, to acquire, you know, craft breweries in the future. I mean, I think they got their fill. Um, but you know, a couple of my sources have, have pointed out, like, they're also not too keen on, uh, you know, making, uh, any more moves that might arouse the ire of, of the, of the DOJ. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now that's why we're seeing companies like Monster and companies like Tilray, which is the uh, the biggest cannabis uh, firm in the world. They just acquired uh, Sweetwater last year, and then Green Flash and um, and Alpine and, and Breckenridge Distillery this year. Um, those buyers from outside of the beer industry um, who don't have you know as much concern around um, antitrust uh, activity um, are moving in. Coca-Cola is kind of in a middle ground. And I mean, just knowing a little bit about its footprint, you know, in the, in the alcohol space, like they can, they probably have some room to roam, but they may be worried about that as well. And that would be a case for, you know, developing extensions off existing brands rather than acquiring a ton more portfolio brands to, you know, move into the alcohol space. So potentially that's, that's a vote in the favor of, you know, eventually line extending Coca-Cola into the alcohol space. My last one, five years in 2015 or 2016, would you have believed that a product called Bud Light Seltzer would exist? Bud Light Seltzer hard soda even. Yeah, no, (laughs) no, I wouldn't. I mean, God, it's, it's so, man, (laughs) five years is a long time. No, you're absolutely right, man. It's, you know, it's so hard. Like, you know, everyone kind of thinks that they're on firm ground. And I mean, in 2016, we were, we thought that IPAs were over, you know, we're about to be over that it was yeah. kind of a saturation point and it was going to turn away. And, and, uh, you know, that's laughable now. It just, IPAs um, remains like just the strongest product category in the craft beer uh, industry. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, look, I never will hold myself out as an oracle of this stuff. I like making predictions. I'm often wrong. <laughs> I mean, I thought last year Budweiser was not, never going to do a Super Bowl commercial again. I thought this was Anheuser Busch InBev's way of kind of like avoiding much scrutiny by just like avoid, you know, like they did like the coronavirus ad instead. Um, and I thought that was going to be it. I thought we were never going to see Budweiser in the Super Bowl again. And I, ju- the press release came out yesterday and Budweiser is going to have a Super Bowl commercial. So just shows you, I have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about, but <laughs> we should probably leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, thank you both. And thank you, Dave, for joining us once again. We were so happy to have you. And um, we'll talk to you guys next time. Right on. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair's tasting director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.